Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. leadership it's like it's super important but leadership is not an office it's a function and what happens is is people get in the role of leadership but never function in the function of leadership and so when you're operating in the function you know what leadership does is God elevates not to put anybody on top of anybody else But he lifts someone up where they can tell the rest of the people what he's about to do and where they're going. So that leadership at its root would be a lifting up of some individuals, not to be over anybody, but to say, prepare yourself because this is what's over the next hill or what's over the next mountain. And how many of you know when you're in a valley, you need somebody that's had some time on the mountain to say, hey, don't worry about what's going on down there. There's something good on the other side of the mountain, but you got to keep moving forward into the destiny and the promise of God. So that's what I feel like I'm doing today is is I feel like the Lord's kind of lifted me up a little bit, not to be over anybody, but just to peek over the mountain, just to convince somebody and let somebody know that there is a better day ahead for you and that God is not gone from you. But he's actually preparing a place. He's actually preparing something for you to walk in in a way that you can't imagine, think, or even comprehend. And so so we've been diving into the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 3 today. And I'm just here to tell you, um, I've talked to some friends of mine. And they just commended me for how brave I am for preaching a series out of the Song of Solomon. So (laughs) if anything else, I feel pretty good about myself, <laughs> that I'm tackling uh, this, this book, but I really, I felt like the Lord just put it on my heart, and I'm seeing so many parallels, because how many of you know, there's not like a single note in a love relationship, it's not like the same all the time, right, it's not like, ding, 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 that sometimes it's ding, 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 dong, <laughs> like that was out of tune, <laughs> And so what I've found is, is that in this symphony of love is like sometimes there's a note being hit that you don't understand. And so this note gets hit, dong, and you're like, no, ding, dong, no, ding, dong, no, ding. And then what the Lord's trying to get us to do is to match his melody and to begin to move and tune ourselves to his heart. And what happens is in the tension of a relationship sometimes is you might be thinking in your mind, what are they thinking in their mind? Have y'all seen the meme with the couple in bed? And the woman's like, he's probably thinking about another woman because he's turned over. And then it shows the bubble over his head and he's like, I can't believe the coach made that substitution in the third quarter when he should have just stayed with the lineup that was doing well, right? Like... Because how many of you know, we don't really know what's going on in the other person's mind. So there is a trust that's got to take root in the heart in a relationship that knows that even though it might seem like one party might be distant, 
that their heart is still attuned to mine. And what is on their mind is not necessarily what I might be thinking. Because how many of you know when you begin to operate in mistrust with no evidence, you begin to project that mistrust onto the other partner? Okay, now I wasn't trying to do no marriage seminar in here, but I'm, I'm just going to help some folks too. And so this would be the dynamic that, that the Song of Songs picks out for the bride and for the bridegroom, for, for Christ and the church. That sometimes we don't understand what God's doing. <laughs> right? And when we don't understand what he's doing, or sometimes even what he's saying, we have to take root into the heart of God and remember that he's the one that never changes. So even though my circumstance might change, God's never changed one moment. That his heart for me is still the same. So what Satan wants to do is enter into the place of circumstantial evidence and then begin to confess to you that God's no longer good. He wants to convince you based upon the circumstance that his heart is not for you. And so when you're going through that valley, you have to anchor yourself in the Lord. And you have to say, you know what? I don't know why this is happening. I don't know where. It feels like the Lord's distance and he's not here. But in my heart, I know he still loves me. And I know he still cares for me. And this is what the bride goes through in Song of Solomon chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. She begins to, the Bible says, be restless in bed and sleepless through the night. I longed for my lover. I wanted him desperately. His absence was painful, so I got up and went out and roved the city. Hunting through the streets and down the alleys. I wanted my lover in the worst way. I looked high and I low and I didn't find him. And then the night watchmen found me as they patrolled the darkened city. Have you seen my dear lost love? I asked. And as you notice this, she's looking... For her lover because her lover is not where he's supposed to be. And there's times in our life where Jesus isn't where we think he's supposed to be. But she gets to her feet and she starts looking. And even the night watchmen haven't seen him. So it would tell us something about there's a pursuit that takes place on the inside of us. And then she goes and tries to ask people that have been watching all night that should have been able to find him. But even they couldn't find him. Have you ever uh, been looking for the Lord and then you sit in church and then the pastor doesn't have an answer for why what's going on is what's going on? Because this is something that it's a personal pursuit. It's, it's a truth that we've got to arrive at that a night watchman can't get up on a stage and tell you. Where he's at. 
Like there's something that's got to awaken in you that says, I'm not going to lay here any longer, but I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to begin to pursue and begin to find these things out for myself. I'll ask others, but they might not know. But just because they don't know, it's not going to stop the love pursuit that's in my heart because the love pursuit that's in my heart is so strong, I can't rest till I find him. Sometimes when the Lord is doing something, I think sometimes he's saying, how much love is in your heart for you to get up with no evidence whatsoever other than his absence to say, I don't care what I got to do. I'm getting to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this is this relentless heart that's stirred up in the bride. So she asked him, have you seen my dear lost love? I asked, no sooner had I left them then I found him. Look at your neighbor and say, I found him. I just helped some of you out right there. Found my dear lost love. Now don't do the rest of this, okay? <laughs> wait till you, wait till later. I threw my arms around him and held him tight. Won't, wouldn't let him go until I had him home again. Safe at home beside the fire. Oh, let me warn you, sisters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, yes, by all the wild deer. Don't excite love. Don't stir it up <laughs> until the time is ripe and you're ready. So this is the first time in this uh, song of songs, it's the ninth poem, that we come to. And it's the first time the bride is a little bit unsure about the bridegroom. That there's been times of her longing and wanting and saying, you're not here, but I'm going to come seek you. But it wasn't out of an insecurity of wondering what was in the heart of the bridegroom. Every other time was her in this kind of exchange of a, y'all know how it is when you first get together with someone, you know, and, and they can't do nothing wrong, and you're just like, you even laugh at their things that, but then a little time passes, and then that, that thing kind of gets on your nerves, and you begin to say, oh, I, uh, I need you to change that. Well, it used to be cute, but now you don't like it anymore. <laughs> I hear ladies say all the time, it's like, I wish he would change, I wish he would change, and then he changes, and they go, this isn't the man I married. <laughs> because we have these things in us, these insecurities, these unhealed things. And sometimes in isolation, when left to ourselves in our own Rolodex of our mind, we'll go to a place that's not very healthy. So maybe we haven't felt his presence in a while. Maybe they ain't played the worship song that I like the most. <laughs> or maybe the pastor's preaching on stuff that he, he I'm not getting fed, you know. And, as, and we get in these places to where we begin to tell ourselves, he ain't here. He's not here, and I don't know where he's at. So some insecurity begins to, to build in the bride. And here's what's crazy is that her pursuit was not full, fueled by love. It was, fueled, it was fueled by insecurity. And what I'm worried about with the bride sometimes is sometimes you guys are worshiping to try to get God's attention. 
Sometimes you're seeking God to try to get something, whether you realize it or not. And when you seek God out of a place of insecurity, it's okay. It's like a pursuit. But it's not from the place of a settled heart that doesn't have to wonder if he's absent or not. It comes from a place that is genuine and pure. And you realize that no matter what the situation is, no matter what is going on, that he never left, that he's always there. And that he's always doing something for my good and his glory. It's like this is what the king is doing. So I want to just liberate some people in here and say, don't let insecurity of if he's going to love you or not lead you into pathways of worship or reading the word. If you read out of that place of insecurity, you're just going to feed into that insecurity because the insecurity that you're feeding will actually grow when you live that way. And then when something doesn't go your way, you think, well, that doesn't work. And then you hit the ejector button. Find out it wasn't God I was searching for. It was something to medicate the insecurity in my heart. And the Lord is wanting to bring us to a place of wholeness. So here we have a change in the mood. It progresses from yearning for his presence through a fear of loss and abandonment to a panicky action. Through the fear of loss, it leads to a rushing torrent. That when she finds him, there's relief. But do you know what? The relief that she felt was probably not the relief that he felt. Because he was probably like, why didn't you trust me? Didn't you know I was preparing a place for you? Didn't you know I got to be out ahead? Because if I don't get out ahead... I can't take you to this next place where I'm trying to go and prepare for you. So the relief that she felt was actually kind of a false relief because it made her feel good. But the king bride, bridegroom lover was more like, is that where our relationship's at? You know, I was out just trying to get some milk (laughs) or your coffee in the morning. (laughs) So what makes you feel good doesn't always move the heart of the king. So where the Lord would take us to is he would create margins of space and absence to get you to trust him when you don't feel him. That's why you need a head full of scripture. (laughs) So that you can begin to quote the thoughts and the intents of God's heart no matter how you feel. Because here's what I found. Feelings are followers. And they make good followers. But when feelings start taking the lead, you'll do all kind of crazy stuff. Is anybody in here this morning? I'm just telling you. Get a hold of this. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is how you grow. In the margins of absence where you tell your feelings how they're supposed to feel. And you tell your feelings what the heart of God is for you. So the devil doesn't have a place to get in through your soulish realm to convince you that something that's not the heart of God. Because if you begin to believe a lie, you'll live out of that lie and you'll empower a lie. And it's something that's not even real. And you begin to live a fake life with a false perception because you've put all your faith into a lie. God's trying to get us to a place of truth. So she clutches him and she won't let him go. 
until he gets back home. And there's this longing. Is this, it's kind of that weird thing like when you, you get in a relationship, it brings you so much joy. But when you're in a position in that relationship to where there's got to be space, there's another part of you that will almost sacrifice everything, including righteousness, to get that person back to you. I know it's quiet in here, but hey, I'm just going to keep preaching it. Can I create a margin of space and still honor the covenant I've got with God? <laughs> right? Because that margin of space begins to develop something on the inside of me that shows me something of myself. Of can I operate in the spirit of God? Because here's what the Spirit of God is. The Spirit of God is not hooping, hollering, and shouting. I love that stuff, by the way, but I'm just going to tell you. But here's what the Spirit is. The Spirit of God brings us into places of love, power, and a sound mind. A disciplined spirit. When you want to know when the Spirit of God is activated in you, when you're disciplined to walk the ways of God, even when your feelings say, go that way. Yo, you want to know where you're at with God? See how obedient you are to the Spirit and how often you operate in a sound mind. If you're not operating in a sound mind, there's a level of insecurity you've not dealt with and that you've not brought to the surface and dealt with, and it's leading you to live all kinds of crazy ways. And so sometimes the insecurity is faced at God, and it looks really righteous because we're like, woohoo, Jesus. But then other times it'll be something else, and then we're like, oh, I'm going after that now. And it begins to look like a flighty, panicky pursuit and the devil uses that to keep us so confused and so in bondage that we don't know if we're coming or going when the Lord would say hey be still and know that I'm God just be still he's there he's there don't let insecurity fuel your pursuit but let it be a deep trusting and knowing that God is for me and not against me. The Songs of Songs is a story about hanging on and letting go. Pursuit on each part of the party. Sometimes it's the bride pursuing and sometimes it's the bridegroom pursuing. But there's this tension of what's going on in your heart because here's what's going on in mine. What's going on in your mind because... Here's what's going on in mine. And here's what I love about the Lord. Here's what I love about Jesus. Is Jesus is very frank with where he's going and what's on his mind. <laughs> but he won't let your insecurity change his mind. <laughs> he's like, all right, here's where I'm going. <laughs> I'm going there. <laughs> I need you to prepare yourself. Because this is where we're going. <laughs> and then he doesn't change his mind even though we throw a fit and squawk and balk and do everything else. <laughs> He's like, I'm here. This is where we're going. I'm letting you know. I'm letting you know multiple times. I'm even letting you know through other people. <laughs> I'm even letting you know through your community. I'm even letting you know all the way around. I'm letting you know even in your quiet time. You open the Bible and you're like, oh, my gosh, this thing just keeps reoccurring. Why? Because he's trying to let you know. I'm taking you where 
I need you to go. Not where you want to go, not where it's the most comfortable, not where it's going to be the most ease, but I'm going to take you to the place that's going to bring about the most glory, the most satisfaction, and the most the best things that I could bring out in your life. Like, this is where I want to go. I can remember the time when uh, me and Elmer were dating, and I just got hired on in Fort Smith uh, to a church to be uh, an associate pastor. And um, me and Elmer were dating, and she helped me and my parents move my stuff uh, into this townhouse that I was renting. And I remember we were loading up stuff, and... The ride up there was good. Everything was good. But in the moment when my parents and Emily began to pull out, uh, Emily just started bawling. And she fell into my arms. And I was like, um, we're supposed to leave on a really good note? <laughs> and she was just like, and we had both experienced long-term dating relationships that didn't work out. And it was just like, so she just was like, just in a moment of transparency, she was just like, I don't know if we're going to be together. You're going to get up here and start your life. And, and I'm going to be down here doing my life. And what happens between this distance? And I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm doing this for us. Because I'm preparing a place so that when the time's right, you can have somewhere to go. <laughs> and we got too many guys that don't know how to prepare a place. And we got women trying to take homeless guys in instead of letting a man create a place and say, I got a place for you.
right is that? I've got to operate in a position of trust. And this is where the disciples get in the same place with Jesus. In John 14, we're going to be looking at John 14, verses 1 through 4, if you want to get there. Um, but the setting is this. Jesus has given them his farewell address. John 13, and he celebrated the last supper that they would have with Jesus, the Passover feast. And they begin to, uh, Jesus washes their feet. And it's like Jesus is saying, it's like, it's like, it's so cool how it reads, but it, it says something to the effect of Jesus during the meal remembered from whence he came. So he started washing their feet. So there was something in the moment that Jesus was saying that he triggered, oh, yeah, I came from the Father. So I need to go into a different kind of mode right here. So he has this memory of, I guess, an eternity with his father that triggered something and says, I'm going to wash their feet. And so he gets down and begins to wash their feet. He even washes Judas' feet. He washes the feet. It's like he's like, and it's kind of weird because if you've ever had Jesus minister to you in a deep way, you always feel a little bit weird because it doesn't feel like you should bring a king that kind of dirt. You know, like if you're going to like, you know, to some high-ranking official, you're probably not going to kick your shoes off and be like, uh, you know, here, uh, scrub these bunions down here and like, you know, these cords down, but it's, that's just not protocol. But it's like, that's, the king's like, and then Peter gets in this weird thing of like, you can't wash my feet. You're the rabbi. And I'm the disciple. And Jesus makes this statement and says, man, if you don't let me do this, you can't have any part of me. You can't have any part if you don't let me go there. So then Peter comes there, and he's like, oh, in that case, uh, wash my whole body, you know? And Jesus is like scratching his head like, uh, this is sufficient for you. Like, oh my gosh, these guys. Um, you know, I was like, scrub out my ears if that's the case. And see, the pursuit, the word sounded right, but he didn't get the heart of what was actually going on in the king. Jesus wasn't trying to create a Holy Ghost car wash. to show them, this is where I'm going to go, guys. I'm going to go lower than you think I'd ever go. Matter of fact, I'm going to be pegged on to a Roman cross that's reserved for slaves and terrorists. I'm going to the place of terrorists and slaves. A Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified because it was such a gruesome thing. And I'm going to be pegged up there. And they knew what that meant. That meant he was going to be stripped naked. So that he was going to be naked and bloody on a cross. And there's something about the crosses is that once you got up there, nobody ever got back up. So all they can hear is when he's saying, hey, guys, there's some things that got to happen before I prepare a place 
to where we come back together and that where we can be together forever. There's some margin or some space I've got to create so that it's prepared so that once I've been there, I can come back and take you with me. So this is what Jesus says in John 14. Because they're just, their minds, they just, they don't know where God's going. John 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be distressed or troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. There are many dwelling places in my father's house. There's a reason why he says this. Otherwise, I would have told you because I'm going away to make ready a place for you. And if I go and make a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me. So that where I am, you may be as well. And you know the way where I'm going. So see, Jesus is saying, like, I know the way. You know the way I'm going. I'm telling you which way I'm going. And here's the end goal of it. It's to prepare a place where that I can come back and get you so that we don't have to be together for a short time or a limited time, but so that we could be actually together forever. So can you create enough margin and trust me enough that I'm going ahead to bring you to a place that's not going to create more distance, but that's actually going to create more longing in your heart so that you might come and go. And when I show up, you be excited and then come together to be together forever. There's something about this margin. Now, when Jesus used this language, he, he really kind of messed them up because this is ancient language for being married. Like what would happen in a Jewish home is, is that a, uh, a, the suitor wanting to marry the, the bride would come to the father. They would sit down at the table and then they would make an agreement. They'd work out the details and they would sign a contract. And as soon as that contract or that agreement had been made, they were betrothed. So they were as good as married. But even though they were as good as married, they couldn't be intimate. Because he had to do a couple things. Number one, he had to raise the money if he didn't have it to pay the bride price, to buy the bride. But then he also had to go back to his house. And that back in that time, they lived in these homes called insula homes where they had one big courtyard where they would all gather together. But then outside of that courtyard was connected houses that were all connected to the father's house. So he had to go and raise the money to pay the bride price that he had agreed to, but then he also had to go back to his father's house and prepare a room for him and his family. So even though they were married, he had to go back and begin to start a payment process to buy her back. Do you see where I'm going? To buy her to himself and also to prepare a place where they could be forever and ever and ever. So Jesus begins to explain his, his route to the cross and his route to the grave and his route to the resurrection and his route to the right hand of the Father. He begins to explain to them that I'm not creating distance to get away from you. I'm actually creating distance to pay the price to prepare a place where we never have to be separated again. 
So what I need you to do in this margin of time, in this margin of space, is develop a longing in your heart that's secure enough to not run to something else, but that will wait for me and wait for my return and want to be with me above everything else. Because you know what time and separation will do? It'll reveal your heart. How many of you got tired of waiting and you went and you settled for something less than what God had for you? problem we got a microwave society and a crockpot God that's why some of you are so tough you think you're filet mignon but you're actually an old chuck roast and you need to just get down in there on low and just stay still with the lid on for a really long time and let God prepare you into what he wants for you I'm getting hungry it's the morning service So here's what would happen in the marriage ritual. So they would they would go and they would create the bride price, right? And this is sometimes it could be high, right? Because it took Jacob seven years. I mean, I waited three. That's pretty hard, guys. <laughs> hey, it was real talk. I can't imagine seven. <laughs> but when you see the bride is worth it, you'll wait as long as you have. Ladies, don't be fooled by the words. You see how long they're willing to wait. Okay, moving on. So he would go and they, he's raising the money. And not only is he raising money, he's building a home. Stacking rocks. And as he's stacking rocks, he's thinking about, oh man, this is going to be the place where the bride's going to be with me. But she's over here. She can't see him. I wonder if he's working hard for me. I, I wonder if he's is he thinking that the process is too much and that the price is too high? Am I worth it? You see that but what's in his heart is I gotta hurry up and build this house because I gotta make this thing happen. I gotta get my bride. I need my bride. I need a family. I need so he's building and all of his focus even though he's not present his focus is on their promise and she's wondering is he even thinking about me maybe he won't come back maybe he'll issue a certificate of divorce So within that space, the, there's a heart that's reality, but there's a heart that has to be worked out and begin to operate in trust. So when the house is finished, he would come back, and, and there wasn't like you know text messaging or like really instant messaging systems. So the bride and the bridegroom would know the approximate time, but they were usually late. It must be like church folk, but uh, <laughs> usually late. So the bridegroom, it would come with a shout. Hey, the bridegroom's here. Wake up. He's coming to get his bride. Then the bridesmaids would wake. Oh, gosh, we got to get up. 
it's at night. Get your oil. Oh, my gosh. Oh, here we go. Okay. And then a procession would begin to build <laughs> as the bridegroom is coming to get his bride. And then he would come and get the bride. And they kind of did things a little bit different. They didn't, well, no, I guess it was about the same. But they would take him up. And then the bridegroom, once they would get back to the house that he had built, the bridegroom and the bride would consummate the marriage. So this is where it gets a little bit whatever, but I, I just, it's part of this process, so I just got to tell you. And they would have the bride's purity cloth, okay? And this was the proof that, that she was a virgin. Okay, moving on from that. They would then take that cloth, show it to the friend of the bridegroom, say, here's the proof that she was a pure bride. They would then take that and take it to the bride's parents, and the bride's parents would keep it as proof. If, her, if they ever tried to bring up her shame, or they would say, no, right here, we got it. She was pure. You can't bring up any charges against her. It's just how they would do it. After they consummated and all that went on, they would have a seven-day feast and a party and celebrate what God had done by bringing these two factions together. Now Jesus takes this paradigm and he turns it completely on its head. Because instead of the blood of the bride showing her purity, it's Jesus' blood that then comes and pays for and cleanses the bride. So I want to tell you, if you don't feel like a pure bride, it's okay. Because the bridegroom came and shed his blood and was shamed and bore your shame up on that cross. And if the devil starts saying, look how impure you are. Jesus just pulls up that bloody rag and said, no, I paid for that. That bride is pure because that bride has my blood all over her. And she is righteous and spotless and made pure and holy. Jesus turns it upside down and says I'm not looking for the bride's blood to be pure my blood's going to make her pure my payment's going to make her pure so ladies the bondage and the guilt Jesus just said you're worth it you're pure shed his blood and said, man, I wish I hadn't have done that. Look how sorry they are. <laughs> he never regretted it. Never regretted it one day in his life. And throughout all eternity, he'll never regret it. <laughs> He's preparing a place. So why do you feel the distance? you're waiting for the consummation of all things because that don't happen until the king comes back. So the space you feel is the tension of trusting if he's going to do what he says and are you going to wait and be faithful and wait on your husband. Yeah. Consummation of all things. The tension of the margin of space that lets us know are we going to be sheep or goats. How does God reveal it out? 
Who can wait? And who won't? Who's going to be content to eat the grass of the shepherd or the cans of the trash can? Who will follow the shepherd and who just jumps on top of everything and acts all kind of crazy? That's what goats do, by the way. Just like Sorry. I can remember. Um, let's all stand to our feet. We're, we're going to come to a close here. But I can remember um, when Kennedy was, was really small. And we were riding around in the car. And she was kind of just able to really articulate some things and, and speak. And uh, I just told her, do you, I just asked her, do you love me? She said, yeah, I love you. And I said, how do I know? She just sat there for a second. And she goes, just wait and you'll see. <laughs> just wait. You'll see. In other words, let time bear it out. And then you're going to know how much I really So I just want to prophesy over in this room right now, and I just want to tell you, God is not absent. He's preparing a place. God is not distant. He's up to something. The space that you fill with all your insecurities and your issues that keep coming to the surface, it's just opportunities to you to speak back to those and say, oh, I've got a God who loves me. I've got a daddy in heaven that loves me. i got Jesus that shed his blood on the cross Thank you. 
junk for his kids. He's not building a house of built of matches or cards. He's building something lasting. He's building something lasting. He's building something eternal that you can't even think or comprehend. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.